a philosophy of sharing and of being open, open science, sharing data. Of course, you know, it's not always open and people don't always sharing. The more you share and the more open you are, the faster science can go. Anyway, science should be without frontiers. For me, that's absolutely key. So we should make the most of all the, the riches that we have. Are you working in research, trying to do the best science you can? Are you a team leader, a research assistant, postdoc, PhD student or any other type of scientist? Are you looking for a place where you can sit, relax and listen to inspiring people? Well, we have good news for you. You've just found what you're looking for. Hi everybody, my name is Renaud Pourpre. And I am Jonathan Weitzman. Welcome, Welcome to, to The, the Lonely Pipet. Helping scientists do better science. My name is Edith Hurd and I work on X chromosome inactivation at the EMBL in Heidelberg. And I'm really happy to share my tips with the lonely pipette. So Edith Hurd was born in London, UK. She read natural sciences at the University of Cambridge, followed by a PhD in Mike Fried's lab at the Imperial Cancer Research Fund. She then moved to the Pasteur Institute in Paris for a postdoc with Philip Avner. Um, during her postdoc, she began studying X chromosome inactivation and became fascinated by epigenetics. In 2001, she created her own team at the Curie Institute in Paris, where she subsequently became director of the genetics and developmental biology department. In 2012, she was appointed to the first chair of epigenetics and cell memory at the Collège de France in Paris. And in 2019, she became the first woman director general of the European Molecular Biology Laboratory, the EMBL, in Heidelberg. Edith has been awarded numerous awards for her work in epigenetics, including the Prix Jean Hamburger, the Grand Prix de la Fondation de Recherche Médicale, the Silver Medal from the CNRS, the L'Oréal UNESCO Women in Science Award. She's a fellow of the Royal Society and a member of the US National Academy of Sciences amongst many other things. Edith, thanks for coming to share your tips with the Lonely Pipette. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Thanks, Edith. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to, and, and a great honor to have you here uh, for the season two of the Lonely Pipette. We, maybe we need to say that uh, we wanted you uh, for the first season, firstly. We love to ask our guest uh, the origin story. So okay, could you tell us how you decided to become a scientist? Yeah. It's an interesting question that um, I've been asked many times. And I usually say, well, you know, at school, I was good at maths and physics and chemistry. And my dad was an engineer. So I, I ended up almost by default becoming a scientist. But I thought about it really hard for you. Thank you. <laughs> and, you know, back to, I guess, and, and also with age, you start to think back to where you came from and where you might be going back to. Um, and, and I realized that actually I had a very um, strange childhood. I was brought up not just in a, you know, multilingual setting. My mother was Greek, my father was um, English, and I was raised in London. So a very strange mixture of cultures. But actually, my scientific background, I think, goes right back to my daily life when I was a little girl. So my father was an engineer and an um, electrical engineer, but he was also fascinated by locomotives. So he had this huge garage where he would 
build locomotives. He also built an electric organ, electronic organ, sorry, in the living room. And so I spent, you know, from the moment I could sort of crawl around, I was crawling around um, little locomotives and organs. And my mother had been a nurse before she stopped working. And she was a very generous, kind person who would host people from Greece, both relatives and friends and friends of friends. And these people who came, they all had one thing in common. Either they were exiles, political exiles, or they were sick. And in fact, the constant throughout my early life was that I was surrounded by people who were sick and came to London to be treated. And many of them came, not just as single people, but whole families who were sick. So I was exposed to, for example, the genetics of breast cancer firsthand, because we would have a young woman, her mother and her aunt all coming to be treated at home. I mean, in London, staying at home with us. And so I guess this gave me a very early sense of um, mortality. I'm not afraid afraid of uh, thinking and talking about death because I saw I was exposed to it so often when I was little. But also a realization that one wants to understand what what's going on, what's happening. And so I was raised on the one hand with you know um, real life human genetics, if you like, and then on the other hand with an electrical engineer um, who built locomotives. And so when I would get too tired of my sort of mother environment, I'd go down to the garage and I'd sit there for hours watching my father build locomotives. So I guess I couldn't really be anything else but a scientist. And I only realized this quite recently. And I was an only child. So I, I, I spent this time with my parents exposed to these different aspects of science. So, so I think that's where my curiosity came from on the one hand. And perhaps also I went from, you know, wanting to do physics because that's all I did actually, maths and physics and chemistry at school to discovering biology when I was at university, where I was lucky enough uh, because I was at Cambridge to be exposed to uh, natural sciences. And so I could do biology. Um, so there you go. That's how I became a scientist. Um, there, there is something that uh, struck me on, on your story is that, yeah, you, you have the medical environment with your, your mom. Yes, I had both the, I would say, the physics and the mechanics as well as the, the more medical. And then it took me a few, a few years to work out what I exactly wanted to do. But for for the for the physics uh, part, what I can see is is uh, you have all these tiny pieces to obtain a, a complete machine. So uh, this is also what you're doing a bit in biology. You're you're deciphering all those little parts of what makes us, you know, what makes uh, functioning a cell. So yeah, exactly. Knowing knowing how something is put together and and understanding, yeah, literally the the mechanics of it somehow, and mm -hmm. whether it's a chromosome. Or an embryo, um, it's true. I, I guess I was, I've always been interested in actually understanding how things work and, mm -hmm. um, and not really giving up easily when it comes to that understanding. The only thing that would really stop me was when there was truly a technical limitation. But otherwise, I was one of these slightly obsessive children who always wanted to, to get to the very bottom of things, like why does maths exist? Or, you know, What is happening to the rest of the universe? And I would drive my father crazy because he was more of a sort of very down-to-earth, hands-on engineer. So I was, yeah. So I was interested in science, I guess, from the beginning, mm -hmm. although it it didn't feel like it was a vocation um, until quite late, until I went to university, where there I had my eureka moment, and I realized that yes, I was made to be a scientist, and I didn't really have any choice. So a, a tough question now: if you if you had not become a biologist. What do you, would you have become? 
So if I hadn't become a biologist, I probably would have become a physicist by default because I had applied to university to read physics. So Cambridge, I could do natural sciences, but then my next choice was Imperial College and there I would have just done pure physics. If I hadn't decided to become a scientist when I was about, I don't know, 10 or 11, I had to make the conscious choice of whether or not I was going to do music. So I did piano from a very early age and and then I, I started to learn to play the clarinet. And in fact, my father really encouraged me to become a musician. But I think I realized that much as I loved it, I just wasn't quite good enough. <laughs> um, so I did actually make a conscious choice not to be a musician. Uh, probably that was my first conscious choice. But then after that, science and biology, it was a much more gradual thing. But the final decision, I think, came when I, I did my third year at Cambridge where I, I, I did genetics. And the genetics department of Cambridge was really quite a place to be. It was pretty wild, some very interesting characters, very inspiring. And that kind of made me yeah, switch into the mode of wanting to be a research scientist and, and being quite, quite motivated to, to sort of dedicate myself to that. But, you know, I went through my ups and downs, as everyone does, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a long, uh, straight path that I followed at all. It was, uh, Were there any points when you thought you might leave science? Oh, yes, several, you know, <laughs> even up until recently. <laughs> I, I think, you know, one, uh, it's normal that scientists should doubt themselves. Whether they should doubt their, their mission in life, maybe that is very personal. But I, I often ask myself, you know, why am I doing this? Am I the best person to be doing this? Um, I'm quite tough on myself. I always have been. I guess that's also part of being an only child. I'm quite self-critical. So from the moment I started my PhD, I was wondering whether I'd made the right choice. And I would then convince myself of it being the right choice. But, you know, I, in the middle of my PhD where nothing had worked and I'd been given at least three different projects to start, none of them were getting anywhere. In fact, you know, my PhD supervisor, who was Mike Freed, an amazing guy, he'd come to me and say, Edith, you're getting nowhere fast. (laughs) So, um, and so, you know, I did have my moments of doubt and I, I applied actually to nature. Nature offices were just down the road from the ICRF and I applied for a job there and was rapidly um, turned off the idea of ever becoming an editor in a journal. So that was good. I did eliminate a few alternative paths along the way and I hung on in there and I am quite a, a, a robust person when it comes to, you know, trying again and trying harder. So my PhD was, was really tough. But in the end, you know, I, I made some discoveries that I'm proud of. You know, I published a, a paper that, that didn't sort of rewrite, uh, you know, the, the science of the topic I was on. But I, I, I feel that I made um, a long, tough journey to uh, achieving something that made me into a robust um, scientist that could go on and do a postdoc. After I, did, I started my postdoc, again, I had moments of down. You know, maybe I shouldn't have become a research scientist. Maybe I should have become a doctor or a medic or something. But, you know, these thoughts became fewer and fewer. The moments of doubt, you know, were more rare and they became sort of more abstract. And um, and then I really got hooked into the subject I've been working on for decades now, X inactivation. And once I got hooked on that, um, I don't think I really doubted uh, the path I took. So, so you mentioned Mike Freed. Um, can you think of mentoring practices that you learned from your mentors and then applied uh, when you set up your own lab? Oh, goodness. Mike was quite a mentor. <laughs> well, for one thing, 
within a few weeks of my arrival, he actually sat me down and said to me, Edith, you have to realize you need mentors. And that's the first time anyone had said this to me. And he really explained what that meant. It wasn't just about him, my supervisor. It was about people who would accompany you, not necessarily, you know, in formal sit-down sessions to tell you what you should or shouldn't be doing, but just people that you could talk to and who would watch out for you. And that's something I learned very early on from Mike Freed. He would always watch out for his people. You know, I left his lab and up until he died just a couple of years ago, every year he would send me a message at Christmas. You know, he was from a, a, a good Jew from the Bronx. So there was no reason for him to send me a, a message at Christmas, but he would always do that and just ask how I was and how the family was and say that he, you know, noticed what I published. And so for me, that is very much the way I would like to be as a mentor as well. I'm not sure I'm quite as good as he was at it, but watching out for my people at every step. So in the beginning, making sure they, you know, they can be trained, they can find their inspiration, find their way. And then when they come to a moment where they have to move out and set their own thing up or move to a postdoc or whatever, to try and accompany them and and do it in a very I would say, straightforward way. So yeah, so for me, mentoring is about caring and, and looking out for the people who've worked for you and also not, not being frightened of continuing to use one's own mentor. So I should, I'll share a secret with you. My mentor, yes. when I, my, my official mentor, when I started my lab, this was before everyone had to have official mentors, but I decided to have one was Susan Gasser, <laughs> who oh. I know, who I know um, has also been, uh, you know, on, on your program, on your podcast. It's very funny because um, at that time, so this was back in 2001, I think, and uh, at the, the Curie Institute, they said to us, you know, think of a mentor and then ask them. So I, I, I reached out to Susan and I asked her and she said, yes, of course. And But then we never really discussed. I mean, we'd meet at meetings, but I never really reached out to her. Um, it was only later that I started to connect with her a lot more. Yeah, her advice was always uh, super valuable. And I just felt that she, you know, would look out for me. But then, um, you know, I've had uh, other people who've looked out for mm -hmm. me as well. Sorry, I, w I was just w wondering, because as as young scientists, when, when people told us, you, you have to go there and find mentors, sometimes we are just afraid to ask or... I don't know what was the, the status of, of Susan uh, Gasser at this moment, but uh, were you not afraid to contact her or what have triggered you to, to contact her? She was someone who was in my field and I was particularly interested when I set up my lab in nuclear organization. I just spent a year with David Spector. So I'd come across Susan in the context of nuclear organization, chromosome dynamics. So she seemed a natural person for me to reach out to scientifically And also, you know, I'd seen her come to give talks when I was still a postdoc and mm -hmm. you might not believe it, but I'm actually a very, I'm a very shy person and I'm actually an introvert. I learned as a child to force myself to overcome those obstacles. So I've learned that if you want your life to move on, you've got to reach out to people. And sometimes they might say, look, you know, I can't or I'm too busy Or actually, um, even I'm not interested. But, you know, if you don't try, <laughs> you'll never know. So I reached out to her thinking that she'd probably say no. I'm also actually deeply pe pessimistic about everything. That's another thing that people don't realize about me. But So I probably reached out to her at the time thinking I'm sure she'll say no because she's too busy. So, you know, I was prepared for a no. That's how I run my life usually. I'm always prepared for a no. <laughs> 
And then when you get a yes, it's a wonderful surprise. Yeah. So yeah, probably this is a good trick, actually, the, the be prepared for a no. So you don't yeah. have the fear anymore. So, so what about now, if we, if we go on the other side, what could you consider as a bad mentoring advice? You know, the mentoring that I got from all the people I worked with was very, very valuable. So I've been lucky. I worked with many different people who've supported me. You know, I mean, what I would say is that there's never a perfect mentor either. So, you know, no one always gives perfect advice. All you can do is do your best. And, you know, I, I had been advised, for example, um, when I decided to move to the States to do a one-year visiting scientist sort of sabbatical with David Spector's lab, I was encouraged to do that by someone else who I regard as my mentor, Christine Petit, who happened to be at the Pasteur Institute. And, you know, she said to me, why don't you go and do a, a one-year sabbatical somewhere and learn something new and then you come back and set up your own lab. So she gave me what I thought was good advice. And then a few other people who I asked said to me, oh, don't do that. You'll waste a year of your life if you do that. Bad mentorship is to put people off from taking steps that they feel they should take. I would say, you know, a bad mentor is someone who doesn't encourage change, sort of some kind of evolution For me, that's the worst thing that you can do to stunt people mm -hmm. um, in their lives. So you ignored the advice and went away on sabbatical. So yes. wh why do you think a sabbatical, what's special about a sabbatical? Well, I think not just a sabbatical. I think in general, um, in science, I mean, we're lucky enough to have a relative degree of freedom to move around the world and experience different environments. And, and I think changing environment is absolutely key to evolving as a scientist. So I think that, you know, taking steps that take you out of your comfort zone really help. They're painful usually in the beginning, but that process of taking stock of a new environment, adapting to it, you know, having new input to what you do, asking questions to new people. For me, every step of my career where I've changed environment has been um, incredibly fruitful because I've managed to move into new things, sometimes without even realizing. When I went to Cold Spring Harbor, for example, I thought I was going to do a certain number of experiments and I was going to be able to benefit from you know, the wonderful environment I had there in David Spector's lab. And he was generous enough to host me and say, you know, basically do what you like in my lab, which was incredible. And from that, I ended up realizing not only how important it is to have a rich network of scientists who you can exchange with, but also that indeed you can try different things and they don't all work, but then you can explore them. So I ended up going down avenues I never imagined, which is, for example, you know, to explore chromatin marks and exon activation. I didn't imagine I was going to end up doing that quite like that. So I think a sabbatical was an amazing thing because you, you do get exposed to different people and different scientists and a different culture and a different country in that case. But also, I think it's important to, um, well, you put things into perspective that, you know, what you take for granted sometimes and the way science is run um, in one place is not the way it's run in another place. And not to be judgmental as well, because if one doesn't see other perspectives, it's very difficult to sort of not be open to different ways of doing things. We want now to hear your uh, vision, your vision about running a lab. Uh, what do you, are you looking for in a student, in a postdoc, and, and especially how do you work with them? So my vision um, is, I would say it's more my, my instinct um, 
the way I, I've always run my life, I guess, is that I need to, to feel that I can interact with people in a very easy and creative way, be it for good things or bad times, you know, the good times and the bad times. So when a student or a postdoc applies to my lab, I really try to get a sense of whether we can communicate at the right level, we're on the same wavelength. I, I try to lay my cards on the table immediately and, and tell them how I see life in my lab. And I, and I also try to make them project into what they would get out of my lab and then for their next steps. Um, and, you know, with, if it's a student, I, I talk to them about what it means to do a PhD and, and how tough it can be, or, but also how amazing this period is of PhD. But then for a postdoc, I also tell them that, you know, they have to prepare themselves for the next steps, which could be either to become a PI or, or to do other things. But but it is a conscious thing one has to think about. And I, I try to help people and accompany them in that. So, But then in the, the, the daily sort of running of a lab, for me, the ideal environment is one where people can just talk to each other freely and to me. So, you know, now because I'm DG at EMBL, it's become much more challenging for me to do that, especially with pandemic as well. But you know, for me, the ideal lab is one where me as group leader, I'm I'm in my office with an open door and people can just walk in and out to tell me whatever that they need to tell me about. And I hope that's how my students and postdocs and, and other people perceive me. And also just to share the excitement and also the pain of science. So, you know, collaboration, team spirit really matters a lot to me. Mm -hmm. Now, whether I always achieve it is another matter. <laughs> so, so one question that I had certainly when you were talking about pain and moment difficulty in, 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 uh, in research, uh, do you have a special trick to create the room to let the people talk about the difficult moment or to exchange about this? Did, I mean, one-to-ones, um, when I have people in my office to, to tell me about their project, I realized, actually, I didn't even know I, I was doing it until a couple of my students actually told me. Usually, I always start the conversation with, how are you? You know, how are you feeling? How are you doing? <laughs> and I, I mean, for me, it's just such an obvious thing to ask. Before you start talking about people's data, you know, you want to know a little bit about where they are in their, not in their whole life, but you know, if something awful just happened to them, then what's the point of talking about the data if they're feeling crappy or whatever? So, so I usually try to open conversations in a way that would allow people to tell me, you know, there have been difficult moments in my lab as in many labs. And I do try to either organize things in a collective way so people can talk to each other. For example, during the group meeting, I, I can remember at least two or three occasions where we had to have a sort of emergency, you know, powwow to sort of say, well, what do you think? What should we do? How can we handle this? But what I realized really worked um, is to organize retreats with my lab and with another lab. So we did this for several years, actually, with Jos Gribnow's lab and, and actually now with uh, Jos Gribnow and Claire Rogel's lab. And, Just allowing people to share time together and talk about science and talk about life is so important. And doing it regularly is really important too. Now, unfortunately, we haven't done this for a while now because mm -hmm. of the pandemic, but I'm looking forward to doing that. And then also just spending, spending a bit of social time with the lab as well, where they feel that they, they can feel free to, you know, joke about me and life in general. So yeah, I'm not sure how much of a vision that is, but, um, But if you want a more kind of formal response to your question, <laughs> my vision is to try and make sure that we really do together take steps to answer 
sometimes very challenging questions and to do it in a collaborative and synergistic way so that people feel, I always feel there's there's more out of a collective group of people that can come than from single individuals. And I hope that my vision is that the lab members that I produce and move on can take some of that with them. Because I think there's so much power in synergy and collective thinking. Do you think you can spot um, whether a student has that potential to be a become a creative scientist? I don't think you can, I mean, spot it, yes, eventually, um, <laughs> but not not uh, in the first five minutes, no. <laughs> so, <laughs> Honestly, no, I can't, I, I couldn't say that. Also, you know, I just think of myself as a student. I was plagued by doubts when I went and interviewed for my PhD position. I'm not sure that, you know, Mike Reed, who very kindly chose me as his student, I don't know how convinced he was that I was going to be, you know, a success. <laughs> Um, in fact, you know, the first three years, as I said, he'd just come and breathe down my neck and say, you're getting nowhere fast. So, <laughs> so probably he was thinking to yourself, oh my God, you know, how did I, 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 oh, I feel I can spot people who don't actually care that much about science. And that's probably the more important thing. I try to make sure that the people who I take in my lab care about science and care about working in a group of people who are doing science. You can't just do science on your own, on your little lonesome. And so that's what I try to find out from people that, that you know, they, they want the scientific endeavor and they want to do it with a, with a group of people who think um, in that way too. So, so you said it, it hasn't always been easy. Uh, we wondered whether any of those difficulties have been linked to being a woman in science and whether you have particular uh, words of advice for young women coming into science. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yes. This is a, <laughs> it's and, a classic you're, question. Well, you're, you which, are which, a, a woman in science no, awardee, so. Uh, sure. No. Sure. Sure. No. I mean, there are so many levels at which one can answer yeah. this question. I guess. I mean, the short answer is yes. Of course, there've been challenges uh, to being a woman in science. I I also want to say that I feel very lucky that all the people I've worked for, my PIs, my mentors, have always been very supportive and meant that I didn't have to really think about it. So at that level, no, I haven't had any you know, major obstacles in my career ever since I started my PhD. But I have had you know, moments where I think, well, if I wasn't a woman, um, maybe this would have been easier, having challenging discussions at meetings mm -hmm. where you know, scientists don't agree sometimes. And you know, I've been told that I should, I should be a bit more quiet and not voice my thoughts because otherwise it could sound, well, I won't use the words, but, you know, so I've had that kind of comment and I think, goodness, you know, if, if I'd been a guy, they would never have said that to me. So those are not big challenges. Um, I did right at the beginning of my career have one major challenge. I should, <laughs> I don't know if I've ever said this to anyone in detail, but um, when I applied to do my PhD, one of the, the people uh, who was uh, at Cambridge and, and who had to, to send in a letter for me um, clearly wasn't very supportive. And, you know, um, so luckily I had a couple of other people who were super su supportive, including Phil Oliver, who sadly passed away just last year. But anyway, there was someone else who wasn't that supportive. And it turns out in those days, you know, we didn't have email and stuff like that. So he actually faxed his letter. And Mike Free told me after he he offered me the position, he said, luckily, I offered you pos the position before I got the letter that came through the post because 
the fax came through black. The machine wasn't working that day. <laughs> and he said, and when I read the letter, I never would have taken it. And so there I thought, wow. Um, and this, you know, so I'm not going to. So, so I might have ended up not, not doing a PhD at all. And, and so I did feel, and this was really a case where, you know, it was in the 80s when I was, when I was an undergraduate. You know, there was a lot of support for students like me, but there was, but there was also a, a certain sort of, you know, majority male dominating atmosphere. I think that's definitely changed, changing. But I did come across a bit of that at the beginning. But after that, I, I did less so. But what I did notice was for other women around me, and, and then I became more and more militant. So now I've become, you know, I'm not a militant feminist at all, but I'm a militant or proactive um, uh, sort of vigilante to make sure that women um, do take the right steps in mm -hmm. their lives. And of course, I'm always available when people want advice about how I juggled my, my home and, um, and professional lives, etc., um, and I also try to to make sure that people realize that you have to take care. Um, you know, gender balance is not a given yet. And it's a bit like other big issues. You know, even democracy is not a given. So you have to keep your eyes open and mm -hmm. make sure that you speak up when you need to. So so everything went well, Pasteur, Curie, and, and, and then you decided to, to move country again and to take on and to be the first, first woman DG of EMBL. So, so what what... What made you um, take that decision? So the MBL, I think, you know, has always been somehow a temple of molecular biology in my mind, a bit like Cold Spring Harbor was in the States for me. So I'd never worked at EMBL, but I'd always heard wonderful things. And when I was at the Curie Institute, of course, the modern Curie Institute was modeled somehow on EMBL by Daniel Louvar, who would always be telling us about, you know, this amazing organization. So I took the job not so much because I wanted to change country again. I was actually very happy where I was um, in Paris. I was extremely happy at the Curie Institute. I was super happy to be professor at the Collège de France. I wasn't looking for a change. And I think there were three reasons why I accepted the role. One is because I really believe in the power of fundamental research, discovery-driven research. I started to feel that there was a true need to defend it. For me, it was an opportunity to take on an organization that is dedicated to fundamental research, but also to enabling fundamental research for others, and not just fundamental, actually applied research for others, because EMBL provides service. It provides access to infrastructures. It provides training. You know, we train people from PhDs to postdocs to engineers. Um, and so, and it's very collaborative. So constantly, bringing in people to learn from us and to do basic research or to use our facilities. So, so it was somehow a, a dream organization at that level. Um, and then the second reason was because I'm a fervent European and I felt that it was important to defend European science. And, and then the third reason was because as a woman, I felt that maybe I had a bit of a duty to, to take on a role that would somehow show that that women could be in leadership positions. As I said, I'm not. I uh, <laughs> I'm I'm militant in in just making sure that people realise that this is possible. I don't want to be a role model necessarily. I don't think you know my life is a it's a very special life and I'm very happy with it. But I don't think it's necessarily the model that other people need. But at least people can see that 
I can do it. Someone like me can do it. And it doesn't mean, you know, sacrificing my research or sacrificing my family. And it doesn't mean that, um, you know, I get sucked up into being just an administrator. So it's a very exciting job. It's also a very demanding job. Um, and it's still quite new to me. But it was, it, it was an offer that I couldn't really, um, refuse. And I don't think I would have accepted any other offer, actually. Um, mm -hmm. So for me, Amble was unique. Yeah. So, so how and when precisely uh, did you know you were ready to, to become a director of such an institute? I, I still somehow, I, so, I sometimes wonder whether I'm ready, actually. <laughs> <laughs> As ever, you know, this self-doubt thing is part of my way of life. So how did I think I was able, um, you know, when I, I talked to the people who, who reached out to me to find out if I would be interested, they were very um, convincing in telling me that I had the right characteristics or attributes that would allow me to do it. So caring a lot about science and also, you know, caring about scientists and, and people around me because I'd been, you know, director of a unit for several years. And so I felt in a way that maybe I did have that capacity to be a director of something bigger. I didn't quite um, imagine just how big it was going to be. I do have to admit that it, was, uh, <laughs> it has been challenging because it's not just, it's not an institute. It's actually six institutes yeah. spread over five different countries. And each institute is different. And as I said earlier, we don't just do research. We deliver service. You know, we provide some of the tools that people use without even thinking. You know, when people go in and do a quick search for, you know, protein structure or so, or, you know, gene or whatever, they use, they use our services. So, so this is actually a very um, interesting organization to run. Mm -hmm. and, and after a year of starting where I had to discover everything, then the pandemic hit. So it became even more interesting. Uh, I would say, yes, it was much more challenging than I ever imagined. And obviously the pandemic didn't help, but it was also an, it's been an incredible discovery because I've learned so much more about different areas of science and also the way to make a big multidisciplinary, multicultural organization work. And there's something really magical about it where you bring together people from all different origins. And I don't just mean, you know, different countries, but backgrounds, and you get them to work together for this mission, which is really just to serve Europe and to serve science. And, and I find that that is actually extraordinary. So I'm, you know, I have 27 countries uh, who I have to convince uh, Emble is worthy of. And that's what I'm doing right now. I'm in the midst of trying to work with my 27 member states to convince them that Emble is a worthy investment for the future. Um, and that's exciting. It's also challenging. Yeah. Because you are talking about all those challenges and, and the, the, the daily work you have now. Do, can you tell us a bit what, what does a typical week looks like? Gosh, I don't want to frighten you. <laughs> <laughs> um, no one will ever want to take the job again. <laughs> uh, what I've realized is that one does have to be extremely organized to be able to not just um, manage, but also lead an organization. So. What actually takes time or took a lot of time was trying to work out how Emble was organized and how, you know, to make everything sort of function as efficiently as possible. And that really came home during the pandemic. 
So, you know, a typical day would be several meetings thinking about um, operational things, you know, dealing with a crisis, uh, crisis management, but also dealing with, with things like, um, you know, new buildings or building a new imaging center. Um, so, you know, I would have, I have meetings like that peppered throughout my week. I have meetings um, throughout my week to talk with our 27 member states. So I spend a lot of time talking to ministries and people in the ministries and also scientists in different countries. And I also spend time talking to some of the different areas I have to work with within EMBL. So I have a strategy office where we think about our new program, which is very exciting. So, you know, there are parts of my day that are fantastically creative where I'm thinking about um, our new program called Molecules to Ecosystems and how molecular biology can move into thinking about life in the context of the environment. So, Whoa. and then how to do that in a kind of operational way, you know, who do we need to talk to, which are the member stakes we need to get on board and how... So that's part of it. And then, of course, I also have time with my lab. Uh, I try to do that regularly. We have lab meetings every week. And I also need to talk to the people who work with me on a daily basis. You know, the people in my office was, for me, one of the, the biggest realizations is to, if you want something to change or evolve, you've got to talk about it and you've got to spend time having conversations with people. And that means that the last two and a half years have just been nonstop. <laughs> so basically, I start usually at 8.30 in the morning and I end at 8.30 in the evening. And often, you know, even at weekends, um, things are a little tough. Luckily, I have a very, very vigilant um, husband who makes sure that I take a little bit of time um, <laughs> to try and balance my life. So so we're going to talk more about, about Edith's life uh, after the break. But just to sort of finish the first half. Um, when you were appointed to the EMBL, um, pa uh, Patrick Kramer, who was the head of the um, EMBL Council, said, today is a great day for European science. So we wondered, what is the, your vision for European science? And, and, and if some of our listeners were in America, what, what does that mean, European science? How, how can you explain that? Yes, it's a, a rich tapestry of science. Um, and I didn't e quite even realize how rich it was until I started. So European science, I think, is, is unique because Europe is such a, a patchwork of different cultures, communities who have, you know, worked together, fought against each other over many centuries, and, as we know. And when it comes to science, you know, there are different institutes within a country, but also in different countries, there are key, there are areas where some countries really are at the absolute cutting edge in the world. And, and what I've realized is that it's, it, it's a mixture of, you know, very, very well-trained people in different ways in different countries, and also with different histories of the kind of science that works in. So, for example, you know, in France, it's very interesting because there's a lot of biology that's linked to physics and maths, you know, maths and physics are very strong as well. And then they feed now into the biology, the, the, the scientists that you meet in France. In the UK, you can see that there's always been a very strong tradition of well-organized research. And so you could see the pandemic, it was incredible how Things were just done properly, you know, the sequencing, the Sanger Institute, and, you know, the different universities and institutes, including EMBL, EBI. And so everything kind of fits together. And so very different aspects of science. And when they're brought together, that is, I think, truly powerful. And so for me, 
European science is the 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 incredible diversity that that we have of scientists, of ways of doing science, of infrastructures, and of course of cultures. And there's a kind of philosophy of the way we should do things. And maybe this is the most important thing I need to say and answer this question: is it a philosophy of sharing and of being open, open science, sharing data. Of course, you know, it's not always open and people don't always sharing, but there's much more of that attitude I find in Europe than in other parts of the world. And for me, that is the vision I would like, you know, Europe to to lead with and to do it by bridging, you know, between disciplines. The more you share and the more open you are, the faster science can go. So I hope that that is what European science will, will be about. And I hope anyway, science should be without frontiers. For me, that's absolutely key. But especially in Europe, it should be without frontiers. and We should make the most of all the, the riches that we have. So that's fantastic. Thanks for that great message to, to finish up. Um, we're going to take a very short break. And after the break, we're going to talk more about Edith's life. <laughs> hey, folks, don't run away. You're listening to The Lonely Piper with Renaud Pourpre and Jonathan Weissman, where our goal is to help scientists do better science. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more, you can follow us on Twitter at Lonely Pipette. And please share the podcast with your friends. If you don't want to miss any of our future episodes, you can subscribe to our mailing list and join our community. Click on the subscription link on our Twitter account. It's as simple as that. Take a few moments to get more tips from the Lonely Pipette. So welcome back. So in the second half, we're going to hear a little bit more about Edith, a little bit less of the vision for European science, <laughs> a bit more about, about the European scientist. In the entrepreneur field, it's very popular for people to talk about their morning routines. So you said you start at half past eight, but do you have some special routine that, um, like, how does your day start? Um, my day starts usually with a mad scramble to get myself out of bed. I'm not an early morning person. Um, but I do force myself to wake up early and it's always excruciating. There it is. I don't think I've ever said this before, but I <laughs> So what's what's been really what's been really interesting is that that we get such different answers. So we spoke to George Church at nine o'clock in the morning and I'm said, Oh sorry, we we've got you up early. And he said, No, I've been up for five hours. <laughs> and then <laughs> and then uh, Maria Elena told us, you know, that she's in a bad mood at breakfast and he's <laughs> everyone's different. So Yeah, I I mean, I really am quite a, I can be a slug um, very easily, <laughs> but usually I don't have a chance to. So indeed, uh, I force myself. So my only routine is I have to have a coffee, an espresso. That's as much as I get. Sometimes it's completely on the trot. So I don't have any special, you know, meditation, relaxation or whatever routine or or even doing exercises. Of course, I should have, but I don't. I just, I, I, I jump straight into work. I do realize, though, in the evening, um, I, I have to try and find some time to make myself switch off. Um, how, how does that work? What does that look like? I use different tricks. Um, <laughs> of course, if I'm with someone, like my husband, uh, just talking is a good trick uh, about anything, everything. Listening to some music. Uh, Sometimes watching a movie, um, but usually I don't have time to do that. And then I realize that that's very bad. So this is all, you know, I don't want people to follow my way of life necessarily, but I tend to 
end up getting my my evenings a little bit um, invaded by work. And then, of course, that means I don't sleep well. And uh, so I try to break my vicious circle as much as I can. Um, and then I try to really take time out uh, when I'm on holiday. And I do have a capacity to switch off that people sometimes doubt. But I'm very good at um, switching into another part of my mind. And I've realized that that is absolutely key to my creativity. Yeah, yeah. If I if I don't have a stepping away from my routine, and I don't just mean, you know, the routine of meetings and stuff. I mean, even the routine of the science that we're doing, the, the, the questions we're asking and the experiments we're doing, I need to kind of break away from that. And my mind needs to relax into something mm -hmm. else and own, I mean, I mean, you know, this is, everyone knows this. You need your mind to sort of uh, be able to, take a step away for you to then come but is that on a weekly solution. basis or monthly or it's i know it, could, it can't just be once a year that i would never manage <laughs> so no i you know sometimes um i'm very lucky because uh i have my greek origin so we have a house in greece and so even a few days in greece uh even mm -hmm. two or three days can be enough um obviously i think you know recharging one's batteries is really important in life at every stage of your life and and I and I think this is an important message for all scientists out there is that, you know, taking that time of recharging is absolutely essential to creativity in the scientific endeavor and thinking about problems in a different way, something you can't crack or, you know, you need to come at a problem with a different angle. And taking the time to read and think without the stresses and pressures of just the daily routine. Mm -hmm. I look back to the beginning of my career when I was a PhD student where, you know, in those days you would do a maxi prep and you'd have to wait <laughs> for like three or four days, right? Well, <laughs> 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 but it's and it was wonderful because you were kind of waiting for your prep and you do a few other things, but you had time to just sit and read and contemplate. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure we still do that because we have so much so accessible all the time that I don't know if I was a student today, whether I would be able to capture those moments of creativity i had in my daily life mm -hmm. now i feel we need to carve them out much more so what is something about yourself that people might be surprised to discover well i mentioned it earlier but i am actually a very shy person do you, do you still get nervous when you give a big talk and and how do you deal with that because that doesn't sound like an introvert activity <laughs> i always get nervous um in fact when I was a student, when I started to have to give talks, and this is for several years, my my supervisor, Mike Freed, told me that I had to prepare properly and and I would, I mean, he trained me. So it would be weeks in advance. And I would write out my talk on cards and I would try to memorize every card and I would do it again and again and again. And I realized that I always gave pretty lousy talks because I was literally not reading out, but memorizing out what I'd learned. And then I decided to get more busy as a as a PI when I started my group, literally. I just didn't have time to do that anymore. <laughs> so then I would still prepare. I'd still get super nervous, but it would come out more naturally. And then I realized that, in fact, my audience was engaging with me more, which gave me the confidence that actually I was doing it right. So I still do get super nervous before a talk, any talk, <laughs> including even just talking to my lab at a lab meeting if I have to give a special. I get nervous about these things. Um, you hide it well. <laughs> I do, I do. I've had 56 years of training. Yeah. In the, what do you think in the last five years, what, what new belief, behavior or habits or, or something else has most improved you, your life? I think probably 
what the last five years have taught me because of my role in this sort of senior leadership position, but also interacting with many, many different cultures and countries is to really try and put yourself into other people's positions. I always did this to some extent, but I've I've become very, very diligent in making sure I try to put myself in someone else's position when I'm asking them for something or when I'm having to challenge them with something or when I'm having to um, you know, inspire them with something. I try to imagine what it must be like. And, you know, when you're dealing with, uh, as I said, you know, a multi-site uh, organization or with 27 different countries, um, that was, it was tough in the beginning, but actually it's, it's quite enjoyable now because you start to learn about what different places are about. And, and that, that's, that's really, I'm not saying I do it well, but I always try at least. And I, and I find it actually quite satisfying because it makes you think about what is, what, where are these people coming from and how are they going to perceive what I'm actually telling them or asking them about and where do they think I'm coming from? So maybe that's something I'm much more conscious of than I ever used to be. Can, can you think of a skill you learned outside of science, but, uh, but that is surprisingly useful in your daily work? Probably my um, multilingual background is incredibly useful in the way I deal with my life, both my science and the rest of my life. So how many, how many languages do you talk? It's not so much how many languages, it's about how I learned them. At the beginning of my life, I could only speak Greek. So I was thrown in at the deep end when I went to school and I had to understand what was going on in an English environment where everyone spoke English and I couldn't speak a word. So I won't go into the background of why this happened. In those days, it was the way, you know, parents were advised to deal with multilingual children. And that has marked me ever more. But it means that I've learned skills about listening to people, thinking about, you know, how I can make myself understood, uh, trying to interact with them all of the time being an incredibly shy and introverted child. I was really, you know, it was painful, but I had to learn about how to deal with different languages. And I realized that in science, that's been super useful for me because when we, um, you know, embark on a new project, I do try to think of, you know, the knowledge we have out there and try to sort of interpret it in different ways. And I never kind of I never knew I was doing this, but now I realize that when I read a paper, I always try to read it from different angles or different lights. And mm -hmm. that's been incredibly helpful. And when we have a new project in the lab, I actually try to think about which directions it could go in and how they could be interpreted depending on the data we get. You know what? And I think this is actually about me using different bits of my brain because I had no choice. I was, as I said, I was thrown mm -hmm. in at the deep end. So for example, to come back to languages, I'm not particularly good at languages. I just had no choice. It was survival. <laughs> and the same happened in France. When I moved to France, I couldn't speak French. I, I you know, I, I, I had very bad no marks in my French O level. I got through, but it was not great. So when I came to France, you know, I was in Phil Avner's lab and at the Pasteur Institute. And he said to me, you have to give your lab meetings in French. <laughs> Literally <laughs> three weeks into my postdoc, I had to give a lab meeting in French. I remember using a lot of body language, waving my arms around <laughs> and, and, and just thinking this is, this is not going to work. But within a year I was fluent. 
and again, because I guess I, I was used to being thrown in at the deep end and then finding my way, finding not just the right words and language, but also how to interact with people to, yeah, to make myself understood and to get what I wanted. Yeah. So, so you mentioned that your, your husband, Vincent, is also a very successful scientist. Has that created, is that a particular challenge, uh, juggling two scientific careers at the same time? It's been both an incredible um, opportunity and gift um, because we've really shared our paths ever since. I mean, we met when I was just at university. So, you know, I was just 21 when we met. And and so I would say that I've grown as a scientist uh, very much thanks to him. In fact, many of the, you know, the ideas that, that I explored and hopefully he explored too were because of this um, joined path that we have, but we never calculated about, you know, both working in epigenetics. But he has always been an absolute inspiration to me. And he still is actually many times. It's because of the conversations I have with him that I can then, for example, come to EMBL and talk about molecules to ecosystems. You know, he actually knows or knew uh, before me, you know, a lot more about ecosystems than I did. He's also been, you know, my greatest supporter. I you know, he's more of a, a women in science person even than I am. He, he and he's the one who who allowed me to you know carry on with a very successful career and have children and without even having to think about whether this was the way to do it or not. And so it's been incredibly successful, I would say, but also incredibly challenging. And I think you know you'd have to ask him for his <laughs> maybe, version. Maybe of we'll story. get him on as well. <laughs> it is tough because um, you know. Having two scientists with the ups and downs of science, and usually there are more downs than ups. So, you know, when both partners know what the pain is about, it can actually, it can be a good thing, but it can also be really, you know, you feel for the other person so much more when you know what they're talking about, right? Exactly. Um, but then on the other hand, you know, I think it, it's helped us both. But I do think that for him, at least, you know, my, my career tra trajectory you know, he's, he's had to accommodate me. So I think he's made more sacrifices than I have. And so I have to sincerely thank him for being my greatest. Support. Thank you, Vincent. <laughs> so, so, so what have been the, what have been the greatest um, challenges of, of, um, of, of directing this big institute? And as you say, it's not one institute, it's six institutes. What has been the biggest challenge for you? So right now, my big challenge is trying to convince 27 countries that they should invest in Amble's future. It's something that I feel I, I, I take very passionately because I believe in the, in, in the good of science. And the pandemic really showed us this. You know, you need science to fight this pandemic. If we hadn't had the science that had been invested in all those years ago, you know, we wouldn't have the vaccines. We wouldn't have, you know, the therapies. And we wouldn't understand the spike protein of SARS-CoV-2. But we have to carry this on and we have to do more. We can do more. But for this... We need investment. And Amble, I discovered, was underfunded just because of the way they were put together over the last 10 years. There's been, I would say, chronic underfunding at the, at the level of the member states that was compensated for very successfully by external funding, you know, grants, et cetera, that people were very good at getting. But the pandemic really showed that we can't carry on like this. You can't have an organization that has to deliver missions like infrastructure access and training you can't run that on external grants. You need to have the core funding 
And so that for now is my biggest challenge and will be for the next six months, convincing 27 countries that they need to invest in Emble's future, not just to survive, but to, to lead and to thrive and, and to help them make the most of it. So you have this fantastic, ambitious vision for, for European science. And at the same time, you tell us you're full of doubt and you're an introvert. So, so how <laughs> it seems incongruous. And, and I, often we hear people talk about imposter syndrome. Do you, do, you, yeah. do you ever feel, what am I doing here? I, How did course. I get here? Of I course. shouldn't be here. No, no. <laughs> of course. I, How do you deal with that? I, I had, yeah, yeah. I've had imposter syndrome <laughs> often. I have to say I'm getting over it. I, do, I know I still have doubts, but I don't have imposter syndrome. I think it's actually a good thing to have doubts. And I think everyone should have a, a healthy dose of doubt mm -hmm. in their day. Self-doubt, <laughs> um, not doubt in others necessarily. I think what... Um, what has allowed me to overcome my introversion, my self-doubt, is that I am I'm deeply enthusiastic about the things I care about. So I'm, although I am a pessimist, I'm actually also an optimist. I'm not sure how you can <laughs> how I can explain that, but I, I'm I'm quite I can be quite idealistic about things. I really care about the the bigger good and. Without being, I hope, unrealistic, um, I am quite idealistic. And I've learned over time that if you really believe in something enough, you can actually help make it happen. Doing it for science is, is worthy. It's worthy. It's worth the time. It's worth the effort. And maybe, you know, maybe I'm not going to succeed on all the fronts I would like to, and my self-doubt will be vindicated. <laughs> <laughs> but at least I'll have tried. And if, if I, even if I achieve only a fraction of what I'm doing, and this goes from running a lab to running Emble, if even only you know, a fraction of the experiments we do or the people, the scientists who move from my lab are successful, I will have done my job. So, um, so yes, that's how you combine introversion, shyness, pessimism, optimism, <laughs> and idealism. <laughs> that's great. Thank you for this uh, answer. It's, it, it's, it's really great. Um, so with all of that, how do you keep focused and, and not get uh, overwhelmed by everything? Uh, do you have any specific tip? I have discovered that to not become overwhelmed means that you do need to try and be as organized as you can be, but that's kind of a no-brainer. I don't feel like I'm a terribly organized person. I guess in my mind, I end up organizing things. So I dedicate the focus time that's required when it really matters. To be able to do that does require discipline. And I think I'm, I'm someone who, because of my education, the way I was brought up at school, I, I was taught that discipline, the discipline of working, focusing, monotasking, despite the fact that what you should be doing is multitasking. <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm lucky to have that. But probably the key to it, not being overwhelmed, because of course, I do feel overwhelmed many times, is to be able to talk to people. And that goes back to what a mentor's for. Uh -huh. Being able to share some of the the good things and the bad things, the troubles, the challenges, talking ideas through, I find is extremely useful. So I guess that's my my answer is talking to people does help me keep things balanced and not feel overwhelmed. Could you identify uh, an apparent failure which set you up for later success? Well, I would say, you know, most of my early career was a series of failures. Uh, my PhD was in a struggle and only sort of took off at the last minute. The basis of 
many of our discoveries were built on the failures of my first few years as a postdoc to try to define what was the minimal region of the X chromosome that could trigger X inactivation. So these transgenesis experiments were pretty much failures because we showed that single copy transgenes just would not work uh, to trigger X inactivation, at least in embryonic stem cells and random X inactivation. So it was that failure that drove me then to think about nuclear organization, to think about chromatin, to think about regulatory landscapes. So that's a scientific failure that I think was very much at the heart of the rest of my career and my lab's um, careers, actually. And then I guess um, the, from the perspective of being a scientist, you know, there have been moments where you feel that you failed, you know, people in your lab or people who you collaborate with, where you haven't been able to deliver together. You know, there have been several of these occasions where I feel like we could have done more or maybe... I didn't make the right decision about a project together with a person. You know, I'm someone who I, I don't forget things easily and I try to make sense of some of that. And I always try to make sure I, I talk through my failures as well as the successes with the people in my lab. So what I've learned is to always try and make the best out of something. So even when a project doesn't pan out the way we want to, think about, well, can we publish at least a methods paper or something like that? So. I've always tried to find something to salvage. Um, yeah. So wrapping up, if you were to meet yourself 20 years younger or as a, as a postdoc, uh, what advice would you give yourself? To be less anxious about doing science. I think I've always been quite an anxious person and maybe that's part of also being a scientist. I don't know. You know, you need to be constantly asking questions and worrying about answers, you know, not sleeping at night because you think, oh my God, <laughs> did I do the right control? And what if this undermines the whole study? You know, just to be a little less anxious and to enjoy the whole process more. I think I didn't really start enjoying myself fully until, you know, quite just a few years ago. My lab helped me enjoy it. And I should say, and we haven't talked about them, but maybe I should give them a word, my children. <laughs> you know, I had my children when I was relatively young, and my daughter when I was 26, my son when I was 30. I feel that, you know, if I'd been a bit less anxious about my science, maybe, you know, I would have been less anxious with them as well. So I think if I went back, I would just tell myself, keep cool enjoy life is too short make the most of every single minute you have um and my my kids have taught me a lot of that as well my husband too so we are going to to wrap up now and uh, so to finish uh where can people find out more about you and, and your work well um i'm on the emble website so you can find out about me there i'm also on the collège de france website and if you really want to hear about what someone like me thinks about every year, I have to give my annual lectures at the Collège de France. So that's one um, environment, but it's all in French. Other than that, yeah, I think on, on my website, I don't have a blog, I don't tweet very rarely, but I do tend to always respond to people if they ask me a question. So people could just contact me as well. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. It's been great. Thank you for giving us so much of your time and so much of your thoughts. And thank you on behalf of all European scientists. Thank you for for, for all that sacrifice and investment for, on, on our behalf. Well, thank you. We're very um, grateful and, for that. And, you know, it's a sacrifice, but on the other hand, you know, I wouldn't do it if I didn't feel it was uh, something I wanted to do. And, uh, and thank you for setting up Lonely Pipette, which I think <laughs> is a fantastic endeavor. And, and uh, I hope uh, 
I hope my podcast will live up to the others. It's <laughs> sure, sure. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Edith. It was a pleasure to have you here and to have so much time with you. Is there anything else you want to add? I would just tell all scientists out there or people who are interested in science that really it's so much worthwhile and there's so much that we have to discover and to enjoy biology. And biology is not just about understanding how we can fix things and heal things, be it human health or it's about discovery. And that wonderful you know, idea that you can wake up in the morning and, and go and discover, um, you know, that's the inspiration to be a scientist. And I hope that many, many young people will realize that. So probably that's my parting words. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us at The Lonely Pipet. We hope that you learned something new, that something resonated with your own experiences, or that you just enjoyed the science. Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Lonely Pipet. And please share it with your friends in the lab. If you want to join our community, you can subscribe to the Lonely Pipet mailing list or mail us by following the link available on our Twitter profile. You will receive the next episodes directly in your mailbox. How cool is that? Stay tuned for the next show and remember, you might feel like a lonely pipette, but it doesn't mean you're alone. Tips from the Lonely Pipette can help you to do better science. A bientôt! A bientôt!